You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. Ghost Photography. EVPs. Frank's Box. Ouija Boards. Captain Howdy said no. For centuries, people have been using technology to try to reach beyond the world we know into the unknown. Such machines and methods cross boundaries into engineering, science, pseudoscience, religion, and artistic expression. And the people who make these devices? Are they sincere seekers? Charlatans? Something else? I mean, when you get down to it, trying to use science to cross boundaries of life's mysteries was a core theme of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And when you use divine magic to do that same trick, well, then you've got yourself a golem. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. I really enjoyed the interview in today's episode, as well as the book that led me to set it up. Peter Biebergall's newest is called Strange Frequencies, and it's all about technology and the paranormal, which listeners will know is right up my alley. Karen and I were already planning to cover some similar topics in more detail, so we're not done with ghost hunting gear and EVPs. More on that soon enough. But as soon as I started Peter's book, I knew we'd have to get him on, since the first technology he goes into is all about his attempt to make his own golem. We'll put a link to Strange Frequencies in his other books in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Most of the technology discussed in this book is pretty benign, even by skeptic standards, but the stuff we discuss reminds me of a recurring online debate around the divide between engineering and science. I know a lot of engineers, and most of them describe themselves as using science or the scientific method in their jobs. But you don't have to use science to do engineering. They're not the exact same thing. I've known engineers who did great work but didn't have the slightest inkling of how to use testing to get rid of bias and assumptions. And there's the perennial online debate about whether Bill Nye the science guy is a scientist. 
Note, he's an engineer and a science promoter, but that's not nearly as catchy, is it? Still, I'd argue that anyone properly applying the scientific method in their approach is doing science, even if you're using it to test the most unlikely of hypotheses. You might disagree. Come on over to the Monster Talk Facebook page and discuss it if you like. But for now, let's get on to the Monster Talk. Today's guest is Peter Biebergall. Peter studied religion and culture at Harvard Divinity School and is the author of a new book called Strange Frequencies, which chronicles many of the ways people have sought to use technology to transcend the mundane to reach the numinous. He's also the author of Too Much to Dream, A Psychedelic American Boyhood, and The Faith Between Us, A Jew and a Catholic Search for the Meaning of God with Scott Korb. Welcome to Monster Talk, Peter. Thanks for having me. Hi, Peter. I loved your book. Uh, You know, these are topics that Karen and I have spent a long time looking in on in general, you know, for years before we even started the podcast. But uh, you do a great job of not only giving sort of a historical overview of these topics, but also, uh, I think, touching on the poetry and sort of the, the, the sort of bigger themes that kind of go along with it. It's easy to kind of hop into the history without really thinking about the people involved and what they're actually looking for. Sure. And I, I think you really captured that. So we're primarily interested in talking about the subjects of strange frequencies in today's interview, but your other titles... Kind of, which I haven't read, but they hint at uh, maybe a long quest. Do you see this book as a continuation of your inquiry into the spiritual? Yes, and actually, you, I think you missed the one before Strange Frequencies, which is called Season of the Witch. Oh my God, which is about oh. rock stars and magic. I totally did. I should have had that in the bio. Yeah, yeah. No, that's okay, because I feel in some ways this is an extension. It There really is a sort of a current, you know, that's moving through. And I think it has to do, so to your question specifically, definitely as a youth, you know, be growing up, my imagination was completely formed by probably some of the same things that formed yours. Um, so in search of boom, yeah. <laughs> creature, du- creature, double feature, creepy and eerie magazines, oh, yeah. Marvel, uh-huh. monster comics, right? All of, all of that stuff. But I also had a particularly maybe deeper interest in the feelings also that that those things evoked, right? It wasn't just a, oh, wouldn't it be cool if the Loch Ness Monster existed, but rather, if that does exist, what does that mean about the nature of everything, right? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Like, especially as a kid, it sort of prompts some ways that magical thinking. And so I was always sort of, I think, looking for the soulful conditions of these things if that's the right way to say it and i you know i went through all my own journeys some of what i i sort of kiddingly have referred to myself as a failed mystic in the past <laughs> and you know definitely at one point in my life really desperately sort of seeking some kind of a spiritual experience and while i certainly would say that i've had have had experiences they were never the kind that i thought i was supposed to have and so maybe i dismissed them for that reason but my eventually i i found that even though i had this personal journey which i i feel like i still have in my own way that as i continued to read and study these things in school and always kept my own sort of hobbyist amateur love of all of this stuff that i started to see that strangely the most 
what felt like the more authentic expression of all of these things was happening more in, in popular ways rather than in what people tended to say were more devotional ways. So something like, I mean, let's just pick an example. You know, I could read as a kid, pick up, you know, the copy of the Satanic Bible in the Walden bookstore. And while that seemed kind of cool, it didn't feel nearly as cool to me or resonate nearly as much as watching Christopher Lee chase the Satan, the Satanist in The Devil Rides Out. Hell yeah. But sorry. Right? <laughs> it was one of my favorite movies. <laughs> oh, you know, Christopher Lee actually said it was one of his, too, because it was one of the only time he got to play a good guy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It yeah. is pretty close to the book. It's really good. Uh, Dennis, yeah. Dennis Wheatley's uh, writing and that film really, really, there are other adaptations of Wheatley were um, not as good. Yeah, no, not a, and much more. I mean, this was this could have been more lurid than it was, and so I think they toned it down given the the the, the British uh, tendency to be as lurid as possible during those years. You know, um, so I think that then what I started to see was that there was something at work in all of these things, which I think is really our imagination, and I use. It's important to say that when I use the imagination, I'm not talking about things that are just made up, that the imagination, right, is that sort of core part of what it means to create and to investigate and to wonder about things. And Mm -hmm. so the example I use, and I've used it before, is when in thinking about rock music, you have the kid who's listening to the heavy metal album in his basement with the upside down pentagram on it. And he thinks, or she thinks that they're tapping into some infernal power, but the band that put the pentagram on that album, maybe just thought it looked cool and wanted to invoke a sense of danger with their music, but maybe doesn't even care about that stuff at all in any spiritual way. And then you have the kids, parents upstairs freaking out because they think, that their child is going to go to hell because they're listening to music that the devil made. Yeah, it so, reminds me. I, I I bet you cover this in the book because I haven't read that one. But the uh, the the story about Ozzy Osbourne allegedly having seen a poster of Aleister Crowley and saying, "Who's that?" Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. Right. So all of this stuff is of a piece, though, right? It's all even though all three of those things are having a different experience with that singular symbol, the pentagram. Something about that symbol is incredibly charged and we invoke it and play with it in all of these various ways. Whether they're true or not is not really as interesting to me as the way in which they play on our consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so the next book really is trying to investigate how we've done that with technology. Uh, In your book, you talk a little bit about uh, the, the golem which is a monster that we've been quite interested in for for some time. So can you tell us about the historical golem and how your research led you to try and make one yourself? Sure. So what's interesting about the golem is there seems to be sort of two currents of, of story. The first is the more recognized and known one, which is the legend of the golem of Prague. Mm-hmm. And that story, it's told in a few different ways, but essentially... The Jews of Prague are being harassed. There are pogroms. They're worried. They go to the rabbi. They say, please, you have to help us. 
You have to do something more than just pray. We need a miracle. You have to invoke God's power here to help us. So the rabbi goes and he takes some clay and he molds it into the figure of a man. And he either, in some of the stories, he writes a Hebrew word, emeth, on its forehead. And some of the tales, he puts a little scroll in its mouth. The golem comes to life. And then it goes on a killing rampage, which was not what the people wanted. They run back to the rabbi, please, you have to stop it. In some of the stories, the golem has grown so tall that the rabbi has to go up on a ladder, erase the name on its forehead, and it crumbles into a heap, crushing the rabbi. In some of the tales, the golem is just put to sleep and is hidden back in the attic of the, of the synagogue. And that story, I think, is probably the one that's most familiar, and it made its way into a famous German film called Der Golem, which is an early uh, piece of cinema. It is in a, There's a version in the Brothers Grimm. You can see it in children's books. And in some ways, that's played, that's been very much connected to the Frankenstein story about hubris and human beings trying to mimic God's creative power it's been attached to notions of artificial intelligence and cybernetics particularly in that book um god and golem um by norbert weiner and so it, it has this long history as sort of a metaphor and as a as this sort of legend but there is also it, within jewish kabbalistic teachings a notion that the mystic can perform certain magical, ritualistic, formulaic activities that could result in the creation of what is called a golem. And what's interesting about that is that it is a deliberate attempt to do what the Kabbalists believe God did, which was to create, not only to create the world, but to create the world using Hebrew letters as the actual sort of genetic code of, of creation. So that's sort of this mystical idea that be underneath everything is the Hebrew alphabet. Okay. But what's really funny about these is that they, you can find the formulas, but they're they're impossible. They, one of them is you're supposed to recite a permutation of Hebrew letters 42,000 times, you know, while you're in a deep trance state and you haven't eaten for 48 hours, right? So, so there's something that's sort of built into it is that not only can you, not only are you not supposed to do it, maybe, but you shouldn't even try. It's, it's sort of the, something for the more OCD mystic, I guess. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you even wonder, like, the, the, the texts themselves, the writers themselves must have had a little bit of, um, of that to be able to write down all of these permutations and then expect that you would be able to do that. Well, it reminds me a bit of the uh, homunculus. We talked about that on an episode <laughs> with a guy who was uh, a, a history of alchemic, alchemical uh, practices. And, and, we, and a lot of the different formula for creating a homunculus almost seemed impossible. And I kind of suspected that maybe the people creating it were like, they believed it was real, but they were their version 
-hmm. they deliberately made it impossible just in case it wasn't, you know, like you, you won't be wrong <laughs> because no one will ever be able to test it. That's right. Now, yeah. the conspiracy theorists might say they're purposefully obfuscating, right? Obfuscating. Obfuscating, yeah, yeah. Obfuscating, you know, yeah. So, so that they know the real way to do it. They're giving mm -hmm. you sort of a, a challenge that you is impossible, but that's only to hide the truth, right, of the of the actual um, formula. Yeah, yeah. Uh but, you know, a, a lot of the topics in your book hit on the question of whether or not these magical projects are supposed to be metaphorical or literal and on whether or not a performance is supposed to be artistry or craftsmanship. And I, and I think as skeptics, we often get hung up on whether stuff is literally real or not. But that seems right. to be less of a concern in your book. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's sort of I mean, I I mean, maybe over the years of, of the work that you've done, it, it gets to a point where you realize even the question, does God exist, isn't even interesting anymore. Like that's, that's not, that, what does it even mean to sort of try to investigate that? But what, it's much more interesting to me to investigate the ways in which people have, have, have bumped up against that question and then tried to sort of activate it in some way. And mm -hmm. so the question of trying to interact with the divine is something that we've been doing since millennia, right? So what's interesting to think about how technology has always been a tool to do that, it seems, also for me ties into that this quest for a spiritual experience is also a quest that's related to in inventiveness, that's related to a little bit of sort of the hacker mindset, that's related to the maker mindset because it's about the human being putting themselves at the front of their own their own destiny as it were mm -hmm. so we and it's very it's very american also i mean and max weber talked about it sort of this prod, american protestant spirit right that it's a it's a fascinating way of thinking about that you know the catholic says faith without works is dead the Protestant says, faith alone, you'll be saved. And yet it's by virtue of how successful you are in your works that is a measure of your salvation. And so that's a very Protestant notion. But it's also this very kind of American and, and I would say almost magical way of thinking about how we can be in charge of our own spiritual Set, you know, our own spiritual destiny. So the inventor, the hacker, and the magician, for me, feel like they're all part of a, part of the same sort of thinking about what it means to be, to try to have a modicum of control over our environment or over ourselves. Mm -hmm. And Peter, you also cover dream machines and various psychic machines made by different researchers. Can you talk a little bit about those and how things have changed in the face of the modern maker culture uh, around these somewhat front fringe projects? <laughs> yes, that's a good um, that's a, a good word. The <laughs> so the dream machine was originally the idea came out of an experience that Brian Geisen, the artist and friend of William Burroughs, had when he was on a bus and the light, the sunlight was flickering through the tree-lined street and he was staring out the window and the flicker 
brought him into sort of a trance state. He started to hallucinate. And so it was very easy for him to imagine, well, why can't, why can't we make something that just flickers light in that way? Mm-hmm. And so anybody could sort of make this. You, you can go online and get plans for it. You basically take a tube of cardboard, cut out uh, certain um, shapes in it, put it on top of a record player, dangle a light bulb inside of it, turn on the record player and as it turns you stare very closely into the into the flicker and there's a lot of um actually you know research real research done that shows that use of light and certain sounds like binaural beats can change brainwave states so we could do that we could if we want, we can just talk about it at that level. But for somebody like Brian Geisen, he saw this device as activating certain kinds of magical states of consciousness. And it became a tool for him and for uh, William Burroughs and for subsequent artists and musicians to use this device as a way of gaining sort of some creative power over the pro- whatever project they were they were doing so this idea of flickering lights and sounds to induce these states of consciousness was sort of developed in a way by this fellow named robert monroe and people can read about his thing called the monroe institute and he's really the father of the out-of-body experience that's sort of his Thing. And you can go and spend thousands of dollars at this institute and use this equipment and they will guide you through an out-of-body experience. And, and apparently also an out-of-money experience. What's- <laughs> yeah. yeah, very good. Always the way. And so what's interesting, though, about that is I, you can, there's a chapter on it in Strange Frequencies, but it gets incredibly complex. There's the Robert Monroe stuff stuff ties into pyramid power and there might even be these sort of alien spiritual entities that use the pyramid of his, the pyramid shaped roof of his house to beam a ray into his body that would allow him to have an out of body experience. And then through that he designed and patented a device that would induce these states of consciousness. Now, if you look at the USPTO, the patent office, it doesn't say anything about out-of-body experience in the descriptor, but it's but it rightly does talk about changes in consciousness. And so this is a really this this notion of of consciousness changing is really important when we're talking about magic, when we're talking about and and what you mentioned at the beginning about end of our chat about about performance because i do think that whether you believe in magic as an, a metaphysical reality or not the fact that certain performative moments using often things like light and sound can induce states of consciousness that historically have looked like mystical states of consciousness. I think it's okay to sit inside the ambiguity of what's actually going on there. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really interested in 
the ways in which the stage magician, the shaman, the, the spiritualist medium, Robert Monroe, you know, are all sort of doing the same thing. And I don't know if it's important to say whether or not somebody is trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes because all you're really trying to do is induce that state of consciousness anyways. If you, you can label it as magic or you could label it as psychological, but the state is the same. What's interesting though about the, how this is becoming a burgeoning part of maker culture is that we now have access to technologies that allow us to do all kinds of and build all kinds of things to alter our bodies to alter our minds, you know, going on to Adafruit and buying an Arduino card and some LEDs, you can build a little device with a pair of sunglasses that will induce these states of consciousness for, you know, less than 25 bucks. So we are the maker culture in many ways, even though it may not use the the same sort of words that say a, a magician might use. I do think that there is a in, intentionally something there about we need to be willing to get back into the middle of being in charge of our own spiritual lives. And sometimes that means voiding the warranty. Like you have to, you have to take those risks. You have to break the thing open you have to be willing to use the thing in a way it wasn't originally intended to be used. And that's what the magician has done. It's what the spirit photographer is doing. It's what the person using, you know, investigating electronic voice phenomena is doing. You know, it reminds me on the strange road that I got to uh, be here. Uh, one of the things I did was uh, I spent some time training to be a professional wrestler. And that can't be true. <laughs> In professional wrestling, they have this concept of the mark, which is kind of like a carny term. Where, oh, yeah. Yeah. And so you, the idea is, you know, you're fooling the rubes, you know, uh, with your performance, right? But, but now wrestling's changed. So there's this idea of the smart mark. They know it's not real. In fact, I would say most wrestling fans know it's not real. But they still enjoy the performance. And I have to suspect that... It, it, what you really look for when you go to a performance is you, you want to lose that. You like you get so caught up in the the performance, you forget it's not real. And that's right. I, and I think that may happen. Like when you go to a magic show, if everything's awesome, if everything's perfect, it seems really magical. You know, on some level, it's not true, but you don't care because it feels true, right? That's right. And so that's those states of enchantment that we don't have to wrestle either before or after with this notion of, of belief or fallacy or any of that. We, we have intentionally allowed ourselves to exist in that state. And so this, this you know, rises to, I think, a question which we don't probably too complicated to get in here, but I think it gets to some of this in the debate around, around atheism and belief. That I think in some ways the the believer and the atheist are both missing the point, as it were, because there still exists the possibility for these ambiguous, enchanted moments that don't require that next level of 
investigating was it real or not that's like who goes to a magic show and then tries to sneak backstage to see how it was done like it's not even you're not even interested i'm sure there's somebody that does that but um a friend of mine ferdinando busima who's an italian stage magician who uses sort of occult symbols and sensibilities in his show he's somebody i profile in the book but he says most people are able to suspend disbelief but what he's interested in, he says, is the magician who can convince the person who refuses to set, suspend disbelief, right? <laughs> it is a pattern of behavior or thought that you can get into trying to solve whether things are true or not, right? And uh, unfortunately, that reductionist sort of view does sort of deduct the experience from it. So like you could say, in a sense, well... If you're in love, it's just these neurochemical experiences creating these, you know, <laughs> hormonal releases in your brain. But that doesn't really explain what it feels like to be in love, right? You know, right. So right. There's, there's still the experiential. For, I don't. That's not really a word, is it? <laughs> there's still this <laughs> the, the 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 feeling of experience, uh, which is different from the whether or not it it's like a, a literal truth. There's a subjective component, right? That's right. But you know, when you introduced me. Like you used the word numinous. I did. I right? like that word. I love that word. But what did you mean by numinous? Well, to me, numinous is uh, the spiritual, the divine. It's it's that sort of transcendent uh, visitation to something beyond our personal experience. Right. And so, but the but the the validity of that being a true thing or a provable untrue thing. Is that is? Do you think that's important? So for me, it's not important to still investigate this notion of the numinous. No, no and I don't. And I think a lot of people want to experience it, whether or not it's a demonstrably true thing, regardless, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I and I certainly, I, and I, I am very interested in the scientific method and determining that I believe there is a real objective reality, or but there's also these experiences people have because we're human you know right and, and uh, i don't want to lose track of that but i also think it's important uh to remember there is a real physical world and there's real consequences sometimes to not being able to discern the 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 real from the imagined I and mean, we're seeing those consequences all the time these days yeah. and i think that that's <laughs> right so you know, I think even you you see that even smartly, believe it or not, in the, in the realm of occult magic. So, so Alistair Crowley said he defined magic as magic is the art and science of causing change to occur in the world according to will. And there's a very funny story. I don't know who tells it. Um, I think maybe Robert Anton Wilson tells this story of when Aleister Crowley is much older, he would hang around this hotel after he had cast an invisibility spell on himself. And there's a day where somebody comes to the hotel and they are up at the desk and they see some sort of old, older man skulking around the shadows and they say, who is that? And they say, oh, that's Aleister Crowley. He's invisible, you know. <laughs> so, so, but then you have this woman, Dion Fortune, a little bit later, and she puts a gloss on it. And I love this gloss. The gloss is magic is the art and science 
of causing change to occur in consciousness according to will. And again, like that's all we need to be able to then, I think, try to manifest or interact with this thing called the numinous, right? We don't have to do anything to the physical world to be able to have that kind of thing take place. And so I think in, in some, there are some strange places though, where that happens. So let's, let's talk about, um, spirit photography, for example, right? Um, the, there's a very famous photograph of Mary Lincoln Todd taken by a Boston photographer by the name of Mumler. And you can see the quote spirit of Abraham Lincoln standing behind her. This is after his assassination. And this was during a time too, when spiritualism was becoming increasingly important for people in spirit photography, specifically after the civil war, because of the trauma of that experience, Christian, it's telling somebody in church that one day they will see their loved ones in heaven just wasn't enough for people to feel better about what had just happened to the country. Mm-hmm. And so they would go to the spirit photographer and they would say, we can, your, your, your lost son can be with you again in this very physical way. And the camera will be the tool through which we can make this happen. And there's a really wonderful idea in the spiritualist community around spirit photography that the, that the spirits were essentially waiting for us to invent the camera so that they could make themselves known in a way that they couldn't before. It's like spirits relied on things like dreams or maybe you were John D and you had your scene stone or some other thing like that. But as we become more technologically advanced, the spirits themselves increase, like they're smarter than us, as it were. They have all the knowledge that there is, and they're waiting for us to catch up. And when they catch up, when we catch up, like we invent the camera, then now they have this new tool they can utilize to bring this physical manifestation of themselves to to take place we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see we could not but she did and in the end what will i become senwa saga Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. 
Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. So how does the sorry no, I interrupt you? Uh, I was wondering how does the modern work in the field compare with the historical origins of the practice? Well, so there's there's two different ways that that's happening. The first is you have things like the ghost hunter TV shows and things like that, mm-hmm. and again, those are an attempt to I think literalize something for whatever reason. And I don't think that those allow for the same kind of interesting ambiguities that we've been talking about. There's a woman who I profile in the book. Her name is Shannon Taggart. She's a photographer who photographs mediums in their trance states. If you ask her if she's a spirit photographer, she would say she is. And people say that she is, and she doesn't necessarily correct them all the time. But if you ask her point blank, you're a spirit photographer, she wouldn't, I don't think she would say that she is. What she, she admits though, is that she purposefully misuses her camera because to do so, again, to sort of play the hacker is to alter the conditions by which this image is going to happen and what you get, and people can Google Shannon's uh, photographs and go to her website. If you look at her photographs, so she'll there'll be a uh, a medium and sitting very still. She'll keep, she'll have her camera open, the shutter open for like thirty seconds to a minute, which is exactly what you're not supposed to do when you're taking uh, a portrait because there's too much light is going to do all kinds of weird things. But she wants those weird things to happen. And what's very interesting is without manipulating the image, just by misusing the camera, more often than not, the image will correspond to what the medium had said was taking place. And so, again, you have this sort of extension of the spear photography from the turn of the century Rather than saying, here, I'm going to literally take a photograph of a spirit, Shannon inserts herself as a sort of an accident inside of this process, knowing, of course, that she's taking a picture of something that's supposed to be spiritual in nature. Mm -hmm. And then these bizarre things take place on the on the on the on the image. You know, over the looking at spirit photography, we've we've covered it a bit on the show. There's been a lot of changes um, in how ectoplasm is used in those photographic uh, uh, sessions. And I know that now when people think of ectoplasm, they tend to think about the slime in Ghostbusters. But it it used to have a really uh, strong similarity to cheesecloth. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and it was much more mysterious and strange. I mean, if you look at some of the early photographs, uh, particularly by this guy, and they shrink notes in. I mean, some of them, some of them are absolutely just um, bordering on, you know, sort of ridiculous. But some of them are beautifully strange and eerie. I don't know where the. Do you know how Ghostbusters went from the white 
milky, mysterious fluid to the green snot-like I, creature? I, I don't. Uh, you know, I, I my recollection... Um, I can't remember if it was ILM or who did the special effects, but I, I have, have always been fascinated by that film since Dan Aykroyd is from a spiritualist family. Yes, and, and it's pretty devout himself. It, yeah, and if, I mean, I think, I mean, it's, the film is remarkable in its ability to be both a comedy and a fairly accurate view of what a lot of people think of ghosts. And we talk a lot about the sort of feedback between fiction and... Uh, I I don't know what you would call it, but like genuine experiences and fictional experiences, they they tend to feed each other. So they they have mm-hmm. this this weird loop back where people see stuff in movies and it influences how they perceive these other kinds of experiences. And I think Ghostbusters has had that impact because I think now that's how people perceive uh, ectoplasm when they think about it, or when they experience it, and and what they showed in the movie is much more like uh, the sort of Fortean phenomenon of star jelly. But it, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's its own thing, but it seems to have really influenced other creators and how people see that sort of stuff in real life now. But you know that there is this sort of underground movement now of mediums trying to return to doing these Victorian-style seance ectoplasm performances. No, I didn't, but I, it doesn't surprise me. Everything's going Victorian. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm um, friends with a lot of people who do theatrical seances, but I don't know any of them who are trying to replicate ectoplasm. So that's very, very interesting to me. Yeah, and what's interesting, there's a couple of people, if you ask, that, like, if you ask them, they would say to you that they're trying to do something that's more like what the shaman is doing. Again, that they're, they're trying to that it's performative for the purposes of trying to create some kind of altered state in the, in the audience. Mm -hmm. I went to one of these uh, with Shannon so that she could take a photograph of the medium producing ectoplasm. And he, it was in the, he was in the spirit cabinet and he was bound and gagged. It was the, you know, just like the Davenport brothers did, and in the at the you know in the 1800s and so there's this it's very much in that people sat around we had to hand in a circle we had to turn over our keys and our cell phones and any other devices we might have and shannon had to receive special permission from the spirits to be able to uh, take a photograph of the medium while he was producing the ectoplasm that's, what did it look like? <laughs> so, so let me just, I, I, I want to say that I, I am, I, I've, I have the word, I have the curse, which is that I am a superstitious skeptic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there, there are plenty of us. <laughs> okay. Superstitious. But I'm also, you know, I have my own spiritual beliefs and I don't want to under, you know, I, I mean, I mean that when I say that, but I'm a rationalist, but I absolutely uh, embrace the irrational. And so I was really open to whatever was going to happen in this okay. experience. I really was just, I wasn't going to prejudge. I was maybe even more, I had even kind of preloaded my expectation to believe because 
you know, I was writing a book and I wanted it to be good. You know, I wanted something to be a little bit, to have some spectacle there. It wasn't as spectacle as I had hoped. <laughs> Certainly the medium was able, he pulled some jellied, you know, white substance out of his mouth and the light was very dim mm -hmm. and there was a lot of uncomfortable gurgling sounds <sighs> emitting from him. Uh -huh. And by that point, I had sort of, there was a lot of, there was a, a couple of other things that had happened during the seance that made me sort of lose my uh, ability to kind of let go. Right. But, but, but Shannon's photographs after the fact are weirder than anything that I saw at the seance. And I, it, what, what I love about that is the technology provided this other window into the experience where even though I was there and I know what I saw, I could look at the photograph and almost remember it differently. It's uh, sounding a lot like uh, psychic surgery on a kind of uh, sleight of hand in producing the ectoplasm. Yes, there's definitely what's interesting about this is that the at least the medium that I saw is most of what he did were like, let, let's put it this way. He was a very, very good stage magician, right, okay. who mm -hmm. had couched it in this spiritualist Victorian uh, performance. Mm -hmm. But but sometimes I think he relied too much on those traditional stage magic techniques that there wasn't there wasn't enough to be there wasn't enough mystery, you know. Right. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen stage magicians that, you know, um, Ricky Jay left more mystery and he was doing up close sleight of hand, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it, in the, it's a it's a really well written chapter. But I have to say that when you started talking about the uh, the the appearance of a slide whistle during the show, oh. I don't think I could have kept my laughter from bursting out. I I, I just <laughs> that would have been too much for me, even, no matter how seriously I was trying to take it. Yeah. Well, because you so when you first when the lights go, I mean when I when the sound started, you're in a completely pitch black. I mean it's the, the darkest room I've ever been in. So they put huge, thick black curtains on everything. There's no light. Your eyes don't adjust ever, hmm. even how long you're sitting. Then they, there's a few times they light a little tea candle so you can see certain things. But um, for the most part, it's completely black. And then some trumpets that have um, that have glow-in-the-dark tape float around. And then you hear drums. And then you hear this very strange sound of what sounds like a slide whistle. But one of the photographs that Shannon showed me after, unfortunately, so when the, I should, let me back up when the medium is starting, he shows you what all his things are. He says, you know, here are the trumpets that the spirits will use. And here's the drums that the spirits will use, but there's no slide whistle. But in the photographs later, when the cur when the when the spirit cabinet is open, you can see a slide whistle on the ground, right. and it's those kind of um, errors. Let's say it's charming, but it loses the uh, it loses some of the mystery. 
Right, right. Did they have uh, slate writing? No, no, he didn't do that. And the other thing he didn't do that I would love to see sometime is the materialization. Have you done that? Have seen any of that? I've, no, I've you mean like it. a silver bell or something? Yeah, something will drop out and suddenly there'll be like a pen or, yeah, a piece of jewelry. Um, and there's, I guess, collections of these materialized items that some mediums have. I thought you meant to actually materializing the ghost. Like oh, I'm sorry. Bell. No, so there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that so, that no, would be cool. I'd love to yeah, see that. that would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you did a chapter on chaos magic. And you talked about the idea of using sigil magic and these ideas about writing. And I thought that it was interesting how they tied back to sort of these Kabbalistic themes about uh, uh, the ancient Hebrew written language having this divine power. Uh, mm -hmm. Did you find that the, the concept of writing uh, was integral to a lot of these belief systems or a lot of these practices? Um, well, I think, again, it has to do with the idea that language is what is the divine creative function, right? And we, you know, there's all, there's a lot of stuff about how, you know, the Bible code, right? That there's hidden meanings in the Bible and things like that. But I think that from a more, from a more Kabbalistic view, it's not, it's not that there's some hidden lottery messages uh, you know, lottery winning numbers or even some kind of apocalyptic information, which is what it seems like people are either looking to win the lottery or find out when the end times is those. But, but I think what the, what the, this mystical notion is, is that, that the, that the Hebrew letters are, are the, are the tech, you know, it's really the tech. It's the, it's the programming language yeah. that God used, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, it and, really felt like that. That as a as a computer guy by day, <laughs> that's uh, it. It all re it really seemed familiar. That sort of metaphorical. Uh, well, even if it's not metaphor, maybe it's literal. But the idea that that there's a language that creates the universe, which is seems to parallel strongly the way that we use words to craft our thoughts. That's right. Craft our thoughts and craft our machines. And um, one of the people that I profile in the book is this guy named Joshua Madeira, who calls himself a technomancer. And he's a chaos magician that uses maker technologies like microcontrollers and things like that to create these performative ritualized experiences. And he would say to you, look, you know, I still am dependent on the tools of the stage magician. But that doesn't mean it's still not magic in its ultimate effects on my consciousness and on the audience, right? So he does things where he will have a ritual, say, magic consecrated circle. And when he steps on a certain, steps in a certain way or moves his hand in a certain way, it might trigger an electronic eye, which will produce an effect over on the other side of the room, which is all for him part of the ritual experience. Even though it's automated, doesn't mean that it's still not contributing to that magical resonance that he's trying to evoke. Yeah, it seemed like a really interesting hybridization of technology, magic, and performance. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that he wasn't really interested in uh, uh, breaking it down too much for you. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I, nope. What are the other top? You talk about a lot of interesting technology. We're not going to have time to get into. I don't think in this inter- interview. But one that I really want to touch on is uh, Frank's box and the ghost radios. And oh I, yeah, I was really amused when I got to that chapter because uh, one of the sources you cite a couple of times is Karen's work. That's right. Yes. Yep. So <laughs> I'm glad you remember. <laughs> Karen. Well, Karen knows new Frank, and and uh, and I thought it would be interesting to talk about. Uh, yeah, I mean, I when I found that the actual like that there was this correspondence, I mean, it was sort of startling to me. Um, and how, how I mean, you tell me how what what kind of relationship ultimately did you have? Well, yeah, I mean, the way that you've positioned it and the way that Lake's positioned it makes it seem like he was a friend, and and he absolutely wasn't. Um, <laughs> Sorry, acquaintance. <laughs> we, we were acquaintances, I guess. So it's a really strange story of the way that it happened. Uh, but I'm originally from Australia. I was living in uh, California at the time. And uh, I'd written a, a couple of articles and uh, quite a few articles about Frank's assumption and, and about uh, Frank's boxes and Joe's boxes and all the different kinds of ghost boxes that uh, are in existence. And uh, so I think it was an article I'd written for um, CFI at the time. Yes, that's so, what I think I, I quote from too, yeah. Yes, it might have been 2009, 2010, and uh, he contacted me, and he was very unhappy with what I'd said and was very defensive and abusive and really wanting to prove himself to me. And uh, now uh, it just so happens within a couple of years uh, I met my now husband, and he's a Denver, Colorado native, and uh, Frank used to live, he's now deceased, he used to live in Littleton, uh, Colorado, so just quite close to where I am now. Uh, anyway, so he invited me to lunch <clears throat> one day to, to basically meet him and to um, to to test one of the machines. And so that was an opportunity I couldn't really refuse. And so uh, we met up at a village inn, I think it was, and and I ended up shouting him lunch, which is Australian for buying him lunch, while he proceeded to tell me his story. And uh, so basically he uh, devised the Frank's box originally to communicate with aliens because he was uh, into aliens at the time. That was all the rage. And when he tried to started communicating, um, he found that he could hear his son who was deceased. So it's a pretty sad story. I think he might have uh, killed himself. So mm. I don't really know exactly what had taken place, but he could hear his son's voice. There's one that says, my dad did this. And I do have a son on the other side, and he does talk to me sometimes. I'm not sure it does. These people have separate needs. That's... But My father did this. So uh, then the device turned into something that you could communicate um, with aliens through to being able to communicate with the dead. And 
So when I met up with him, he actually gave me one of his boxes, which was really cool to have. Uh, I'm sure it would be worth a lot on eBay, but it's quite a, a thing to have. I think it's number 64. He numbers oh all gosh, of his yeah. he numbered all of his boxes and had a little picture of a robot or something or a little creature on there um, and would have crystals inside the boxes too. So it's basically a, a broken radio. I think we, we know how it works. Um, and But he was very earnest about his beliefs. I think he really believed in the device and – he never profited. He didn't sell his devices. He would mm-hmm. give them away. And um, he believed that he could communicate with various, I guess you, other people have called them, like Chris Moon have called them technicians. So these are people who kind of are in between worlds and help facilitate communication. Yes, it's a very important point, that. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I know that um, I've just been embroiled in some personal dramas with some people who uh, who are still alive and claiming that they can that they're using deceased people, real deceased people, as technicians, and it's causing a lot of grief for their families. Sure. Um, so now that Frank has passed himself, and I think he died about 2013, could have been 2014 at the latest. And so now people are saying that they can communicate with him, and that he's one of these technicians. Didn't he return to the idea though that ultimately he was communicating with aliens? I'm sorry, could he or? Didn't he? Didn't he ultimately return to that at the end and that he was a princess on this other planet? And well, Yeah, that's another thing too. Um, so I, I don't uh, know quite whether they were aliens or from some other dimension. Okay. But uh, he, he had people who were, there was one technician I remember called Otto. A lot of them had German names and they could see him as a purple princess. And when I met him, he happened to wear a lot of purple, um, and I think that they were seeing him as a woman as well, so the purple princess. Um, they had all of these different nicknames for him, but they saw him as some kind of leader of theirs. So you're right. I mean, it, it's somewhat deceased people talking to the dead, somewhat aliens, somewhat just other creatures from other dimensions and, and I, planets. I feel like I can't let it go that they had German names, saw him as a leader, saw him as a woman, and not say Lederhosen. Okay, so we can move on. So there's a couple of interesting historical precedents there, though, because there was that guy Spear, an American, who tried to invent this perpetual motion machine, and he believed that he was being instructed by these other dead inventors, um, and that they... These these spirits had formed essentially like an electrician's union of mm-hmm. spirits that were called. I think they were called the electrolyzers. Wow! And they were uh, feeding him uh, this these schematics, these plans to right. create this perpetual motion machine. Right. Um, so this idea that, you know, again, that the, the, but what, what, what's important about that is that you also see it in the spirit photography history in the turn of the century, that the spirits themselves were acting almost like scientists mm-hmm. that were not only providing the knowledge, but were also manipulating the technology to help it, become more of a carrier for them to be able to do what they needed to do. Yeah, I wonder, just, 
I wondered if that didn't come out of theosophy, since Blavatsky was always talking about these these ancients and their their technology and magic and all these other things that she had privy to and that other theosophists could get access to. So, oh yeah, yeah, yep. That goes back to the idea of like the vril energy, yeah. the hollow earth, and there's always this idea. You know, we still have it in in occult circles that the ancients had better technology than we have now. Yeah, <laughs> that right, this, right. And that it, but so in the spirit world, it's being fed through, sort of in these similar ways. There's a very right. funny story in one of the spiritualist texts, uh, one of the early texts, where a medium is asking the spirits how they are able to impress themselves onto the photographic plates mm-hmm. and if they could explain the process and and the spirits say well you would have to be on our side of reality to know how to do it it's just too complicated <laughs> to explain to you what it is and so i wonder if you take something like a ghost box like frank's box which really like you said is just a broken radio but this idea that you break it just enough so that the spirits can add their own sort of technical know-how, right? Um, Absolutely, to- and and I think that uh, that was Frank's belief too that the the spirits had given him the schematics and helped him to improve the the devices over time. Yes, it's a, it's a you know it's funny because I have to say. It, and I and I say this with due respect because I'm very grateful to the people that I spoke with. Uh, I interviewed many people for this book who are involved in EVP. But I found that of all these technologies that I investigated, whether it was the golem, automatons, spirit photography, things like the dream machine, the makers, the the sort of magical makers, that it was the EVP that left me the most wanting because it sets itself, the most EVP practitioners set themselves up in such fundamental ways that it, that if you don't allow for these ambiguous, subjective, magical places then really what you're doing is you're just give you're just giving me a you may as well be telling me that the earth was created in 6 days and god rested on the 7th 6000 years ago right it's there's just no room for your imagination to have a play with it there one of the things that was frustrating about the evp practitioners on youtube and i talk about this in the book is that they they'll use a spirit radio or a frank's box you can't understand what it says, but they'll caption the video. Mm-hmm. So then you can't not hear yeah. what right. the noise the being generated you. is. Uh, right, exactly. And mm-hmm. so I find that I would much rather be able to be in the same place they are. Right. Hearing these sounds, amplifying them, is there anything there, letting my imagination play with it, experiencing that sort of state of mind where being sort of a hacker and playing with these devices is its own kind of moment. But Mm -hmm. this literalizing of all of this, I think is, is in some ways a disservice to the possibilities of enchantment that might be inherent in that activity. Right. Well, 
Frank would always say that there was a way to listen to the box and that there was a particular language and um, the you know, interpretation was really subjective, but he used to gear a lot of that himself and he would talk about spending many hours learning how to listen to the box and really that's putting his own beliefs and um, subjective interpretation onto what he was listening to. That's right. I think we're, we're definitely going to be doing a deep dive on EVPs in the very near future. So, uh, but it's a great topic. It is, and I really liked your coverage of yeah. it because it gives a really interesting coverage of the history of it. And there was also a, a recent episode of a show called Bone and Sickle, which I like quite a lot, which did a really cool uh, episode about that as well, which gave a lot of recordings from the original sort of records produced from the first EVP. Oh, like the Jorgensen and the Rod. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, it's so interesting. Wild. Yeah, it is. So, um, well, I tell you, we, we unfortunately, I think we're out of time. Um, but I, I want to talk to you in the future. We'll, we're going to have to read your magic and rock and roll book and have you back if you're yes. up for it. Oh, I'd love to. I yeah. really yeah. enjoyed speaking to both of you. I really appreciate the time. This is good stuff. So one thing that you didn't include, though, I was curious about, I di- or maybe you did and I missed it, but Wilhelm Reich's Orgon Collectors. Yeah, so I think that, so there was a place where I had to make a distinction that I know many people don't agree with, but I do, at least for the purpose of this book, make a distinction between magic and the supernatural and what I would call the paranormal. Okay. So in the same way that I'm not investigating ESP and any devices that might enhance psychic abilities or things like that, I, I sort of steered away from things that felt that they were more about um, the um, human potential stuff. Gotcha. Right. Does that, does that distinction make sense? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and yeah. it, we've never had occasion to talk about it on Monster Talk, uh, but uh, it's it's a to- it's one of those strange sort of fringe things you run into when you you deal in the forty and the paranormal, oh, this sort of stuff. Absolutely. So it's plus it, there's the Hawkwind song, which is one of the great rock and roll songs of all time. Well, and then uh, Kate Bush's song uh, about cloud busting. Right. So. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Oh, that's neat. Uh, the whole video is basically the story of Wilhelm Reich. If you watch it, it's really cool. Not Wuthering Heights. With, <laughs> not Wuthering Heights. Okay, but yeah, the the video's got um, Donald Sutherland as playing sort of the Wilhelm Reich character. It's really interesting. Okay. Uh, it's a good video. It's a great song. Uh, all hell, Kate. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sorry, sorry, that's. We've got, uh, <laughs> uh, we've got one final question, Peter, that we like to ask all of our guests, yeah. and that is, what's your favorite monster? What a question! So, um, I did write a lot about Frankenstein in this book, partly because Frankenstein is one of my favorite. The, the Frankenstein monster is one of my favorite monsters, particularly Boris Karloff's um, performance as that creature. But I've always, believe it or not, had a very special place in my heart for anything having to do with mummies. Mm. Okay. So I, and I also think that the original um, uh, mummy film with also Boris Karloff playing the titular character really has one of the great moments in monster movie history which is the response that the archaeologist has when he when the mummy first awakens. Oh, my God. I just used a clip from this in an episode a few weeks ago. Yeah. So, you know, monster movies now, everybody screams. Yeah. It's like, you can't believe it. Or, But he laughs. 
Oh, it's so chilling. Oh, my God. That's the response you would have to the mummy. He went for a little walk. (laughs) Right? It's so good. Oh, my God. It still gives me chills. It's awesome. I love it. It's it's one of the great scenes of that whole era of of film. It really is. Nice choice, then. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we've had mummies before, either. Have you? No, I don't. Maybe. uh, Although, Kenny Fader, the archaeologist, that's his favorite movie along this line. I mean, he loves that film. But, yeah, uh, it's, it's... it's perennial here, but it's funny because my daughters, uh, one of my daughters was asking me about this. We were just on a road trip, so we were all stuck together for eight hours in the car. And she wanted to know when, when the mummy became a monster. And I had to like explain to her the history of how that, you know, that's more of a, a Victorian construction that, you know, mummies mm-hmm. were about eternal life, not being uh, either autonomous or controlled monsters. But in some of the films, like the Hammer films, the the mummy ends up being more like a golem, which is interesting. That's uh, right. Um, but uh, in the original, it's much more about uh, trying to get reunited with uh, his uh, his the soul of his dead love. But and in fact, even the '99 version, although the special effects were crazy over the top and it was an action fun comedy thing, uh, the 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 core plot of the mummy's goal was still the same. And, oh yeah, that harkens yeah. much more back to that original story. Then. It really does. So I was kind of disappointed with the Tom Cruise version. Um, it, for a lot of reasons, but you know yeah. that's okay. So I, I, I still hope that they'll someday be able to uh, resurrect those mo- monsters in a in a, in a, in a sustainable way. So <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm waiting. Although I have to, we should also say that nothing has made me happier in the last couple of months than seeing the trailer for the new Godzilla. Oh movie my god! Yeah, <laughs> my I son mean, is such know. a huge Godzilla fan. Uh, He's lost his mind over this thing. He's yeah. so excited. Yeah. <laughs> It's like it's like I almost wish they wouldn't release the trailers until like a week before the film because <laughs> now I have to so put up with it, about... the, the countdown, <laughs> right? So he's so he's he's trying to make a Lego version of the trailer. He's having he's so oh that's great so, so wow. thrilled yeah. All right, well Peter, yeah. thank you so much for this book and thank you so much for spending time with us on Monster Talk. Of course, thank yeah, you for having so me. That was so interesting. We'll, we'll have to have you back. I hope so. Thank you. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You were just listening to an interview with Peter Biebergall about his latest book, Strange Frequencies. We really enjoyed talking with him, and I really enjoyed his book. And I bet you will, too. A link to it is in our show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk's an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of my guests and myself and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones, and we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please... Share our show on your favorite social media platforms. 
Here's some information about a really interesting project that's being done by Brian Dunning from the Skeptoid Podcast, which I am very interested in supporting however I can. Longtime listeners to Skeptoid and also to our colleague podcasts often ask, what can I do? We all believe in the value of critical thinking and of the intellectual tools that help us tell fact from fiction. But we don't always know how to best spread those tools to others. Well, let me offer one easy and effective option. Skeptoid Media, that's us by the way, is currently in production on a feature documentary titled Science Friction about how the media abuses its science experts by misquoting them or editing them out of context, exploiting their reputations to promote sensationalized news or fake documentaries promoting debunked alternative histories. Part of our mission as a nonprofit is that we will retain educational rights to give this movie free to teachers worldwide, alongside complete, professionally produced educational materials to bring formalized lessons in critical thinking and scientific skepticism directly into classrooms. To retain those rights, we're crowdfunding the initial production. We're just about halfway to our goal right now, which you can see at sciencefriction.tv. You want to know what you can do to give the tools to students? This is it. We're asking a basic contribution of $100. If you're on the team, now's the time to take the field and play ball. Please come to sciencefriction.tv and make your tax-deductible donation to Science Friction. We ask $100, but any amount helps. Donate enough, you can even become an executive producer and get a legitimate screen credit. ScienceFriction.tv. Watch the promo and see our stories. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you so much for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. Uh, Do you know how to pronounce my hmm. last name? Well, let me take a stab at it. Is it Biebergall? Oh, my God. I've never gotten anybody in the first try get it that perfect. Sweet! <laughs> <laughs>